The following is a presentation of Dating Kinky, built by Kingsters for Kingsters, Poly, Queer, Transfolk, and anyone not quite vanilla. And it's free. In its fourth season of presenting personalities as their authentic selves, this is What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want, presented by Dating Kinky, the official podcast of FetishCon. It's an intimate conversation with people inside the kink and fetish worlds, as well as other educators and sex-positive personalities sharing their stories of what makes them who they are. And now, here is your host, John, or as they are known in the kink and fetish communities. Hi there, Catsuit. Hello there, Nookie, and to our listeners, welcome. On today's program, we're going to take a look back in history with someone who understands the story and advocates for its modern tale. Sex worker rights advocate, comedian, and writer, Caitlin Bailey is the founder and executive director of Old Pros, a nonprofit media organization creating conditions to change the status of sex workers in society. The host of the Oldest Profession podcast, she is also the creator of Whore's Eye View, a 75-minute mad dash through 10,000 years of sex worker history. A globally recognized leader in the sex worker rights movement, Caitlin Bailey has been quoted by the New York Times, Rolling Stone, Washington Post, Boston Globe, New York Post, Village Voice, The Nation, The Reason, and on NBC. And she's written for The Daily Beast, Vice, and 11 syndicated newspapers talking about Senate Bill 357. She's also been invited to speak on Fox Business at Yale Law School, Penn University, and UCLA. Caitlin's views are backed by Amnesty International, the World Health Organization, Human Rights Watch, and UNAIDS who all agree that the decriminalization of sex work is the only policy that reduces violence. Caitlin Bailey on What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want. What was the genesis of what made our guests who they are? We begin that journey with the first five. Five questions about firsts. First time you ever read an article that made you say, I need to start advocating for sex workers. Ooh, that is a good one. I want to say I came across sex worker rights relatively early, although I wasn't fully aware of what it is I was reading. And I can't remember if I stumbled on to like an Annie Sprinkle article or a Margot St. James article, but it happened when I was in middle school, seventh or eighth grade. 
which was a, a big exploratory time for me. I was part of this like, you know, radical youth group that was advocating for, you know, wild things like the legalization of marijuana and also ending the death penalty for people under the age of 18 and also the end of capitalism. Uh, we achieved some of our goals. Um, but yeah, I think it was during that period of time, seventh, eighth, maybe ninth grade, but I think it was like late middle school when sex worker rights as a concept came into my consciousness. And I'm sure it was the writings of Margot St. James, maybe Carol Lee or Annie Sprinkle, but it, I think it was in maybe zine form. First time you ever advocated for anything or anyone. Oof. I took up a weird cause when I was in elementary school. I was in the second grade and we had transitioned from uh, Germany to the United States. And I remember they switched from boxed milk, box, little cardboard boxes of milk to bags of milk. And there, and I, I was not a milk drinker myself. Like my, my parents packed my lunch. I didn't do like the cafeteria line, but people were upset about it. And I was like, well, we should start a petition. And so we did that. We wrote, a, we, we got together. We wrote a very clear sentence, which was, uh, we do not like the bagged milk. We would like to return to the cardboard milk. And I spent the lunch hour gathering signatures with a very high conversion rate. A lot of people willing to sign on to that. And I got I got into trouble. I got brought into the principal's office for uh, making a ruckus. And my father, they brought my father in, who at that point, you know, by the time I was in the second grade, my father had fought in three wars four times. Right. So and he arrived with the full force of like, I thought that we were fighting for freedom. And if my daughter doesn't have the freedom to circulate a petition during lunch, then what are we even doing here? And so that that was a real an early and emphatic permission slip to become the uh, the advocate that I've become. First time you stood on stage and told a joke and got a good laugh out of it. And Ooh. do you remember what the joke was? Oh, I wish I remember what the joke was. I think I actually got my first. Oh, nope. I remember specifically. It wasn't a joke. It was something that happened to me. Uh Second grade, same transition, right, from Germany to the, the U.S., and we were participating in a spelling bee. And I did well enough in the class spelling bee to be moved to the school-wide auditorium spelling bee. And the way that it was supposed to work was that you were, you know, if you were out or whatever, then uh, you had to sit down. Uh, like, you were seated in the seat, and then if you lost, then you just moved to, like, sitting uh, crisscross applesauce, which is not what they were calling it in the day, uh, on the floor. And I I spelled the word tickle and I got I spelled it correctly, but I forgot to say the word at the end. So I got out on a technicality. So I got sat down and I was at all a sourpuss about it. Right. It was just very visibly upset as like an 18 year an eight year old. Right. At the injustice of it all. And so I was sitting right next to the teacher who in an effort to make me feel better. The next word was tickle. And so she tickled me and I audibly farted and I watched the news of that fart spread from the first row through the back of the auditorium. And the young gentleman sitting next to me would not stop making PU faces for the rest of the spelling bee. And that was my first laugh on stage. So many places I can go. <laughs> 
So you're telling me your first joke really stunk anyway. Ah, good one. Thank you. Yes, and. <laughs> first time you had an encounter with a sex worker who said, thank you, Caitlin. Oh, that's a great question. I've gotten from sex workers recently, like, thank you for the work that you're doing. And I've gotten, thank you, my stage name, you know, for the interactions that happen. But I'm not actually recalling a time where I ever got, and no, I, I remember I was, uh, I don't know that this was the first time, but it was a, a recent time or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I was just driving around with some other fellow sex worker advocates and Venmo, we did a Venmo exchange and then the ding happened and got a, thank you, Kate. It's, it's not a dramatic story. <laughs> I don't even know if that counts. It's just a, you know, the mundane. First time you realized that the work you were doing was making a difference. I don't know that that's happened yet. It still often feels like shouting into an empty cave. Um, Actually, no, that's not true. I had a moment um, where I felt like I was really moving the needle. And that was we hosted an old pros party in D.C. And by that point, I'd been going to conferences both in my capacity as comms director for decriminalized sex work and then also as the founder and executive director of my own organization. And so I'd been building these relationships and we reached out to all of these people and we hosted this event in this a progressive organization space, but we invited people from the corners of the like more conservative libertarian world. And so there were folks from the Cato Institute and ALEC and Americans for Prosperity who like found their way into this progressive space. And then, and this is what I was watching happened that felt like, oh, I'm this is really moving the needle. All of those conservatives recognized each other at the party. And so it became like a social permission slip to stand behind like, oh, other smart people that are politically aligned with me are standing with sex workers. And that felt like real progress. Definitely the genesis of an amazing story. And when we <laughs> return with Caitlin Bailey on what women and other wonderful humans want, we're going to talk about how such a young person can be such an old pro when we come back. <laughs> For more than three years, we have presented this podcast as a labor of love without paid advertisers. We do this as we want to give back to this wonderful community for all the gifts it has given us. If you want to financially support our efforts, please visit bit.ly slash thanks catsuit and give what you can to help Catsuit travel, teach, and bring you great in-person interviews. We will give you that address again later in the show. Now, here are some words from Catsuit's friends about things you should know about. Hi, Catsuit. Thank you so much for sharing your wholesome space with the team of Fetish Bacchanal. Sparkle the Brat and I, Goddess Alanis, will be hosting a three-day Kingfield retreat in Jamaica, June 28th to the 30th, 2024. This is going to be an escape of a property with a cleansing mineral cave right in the heart of it. Follow at Fetish Bacchanal on Twitter for more updates on ticket links, vending, performances, and more. 
Welcome to the Yoniverse. I'm Scarlett. And I'm Anya. The Flaming Yoni podcast is a celebration of the beautiful and unique expressions of female sexuality. From asexual to megasexual, from lifelong monogamy to relationship anarchy, from deep spiritual bonds of sacred union to spur of the moment flames. It is all infused with Yoni energy. Search for the Flaming Yoni on your favorite podcast platform. You will not leave the same as when you came. We are proud to be the official podcast of FetishCon, and we want you to join us in St. Petersburg, Florida, August 8th through 11th, 2024. The trade show brings together models, producers, industry leaders, and fans from all over the world, and brings you great classes in kink or how to become an industry professional. You can get all the details at fetishcon.com. Hi, this is Venus, and I have a special message going out to all the single ladies listening right now. What if you could have a committed, loving relationship with a partner who is monogamous to you, but who would love to see you have sexual experiences with others? Sounds too good to be true, right? Well, it's not. You really can have your cake and eat it too. You can have it all. Learn more at venusconnections.com. That's venusconnections.com. Empowering designs for fetish models, doms, sex workers, or anyone else who needs to be seen as their authentic selves. Visit the What Women Want podcast store at Kingster Merch on Etsy to see those and other wonderful designs for all Kingsters. Now, back to the show and more with our guests on What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want. Thank you, Nookie, and welcome back to What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want, presented by Dating Kinky, with special thanks to Kinkster Merch, joined by Caitlin Bailey, who is the founder and executive director of Old Pros, a nonprofit media organization creating conditions to change the status of sex workers in society and the host of the Oldest Profession podcast. I have heard it called the oldest profession, but you have taken it to a new level in your podcast, going way, way back (laughs) and showing us that this profession is not something that just came about in the age of media, but it's been going on for a long time. When was your fascination with this at such a peak that you said, maybe I want to do something about this? Yeah, that's I've always been interested in sex worker stories, and I've always suspected that we've been really wrong about the oldest profession for a really long time. And that made you think that because that's a very interesting thought process. Yeah, I mean, I am the uh, I am the product of George W. Bush's abstinence only education program, which did not work uh, for me and many others. But it was a bit much for me to have sort of, you know, religious um, extremists, in my opinion, uh, come into my public school with the explicit intention of giving misinformation to students. And that was my that was my experience of sex education. And, you know, I'm the 
daughter of my mother was a you know HIV AIDS and gay rights advocate in the 1980s and 90s. Um, I was going to Planned Parenthood marches. It was impressed upon me very early how important it was this like decision to you know whether or not to become a mother um, and bodily autonomy. And also the daughter of, you know, a soldier uh, and, you know, not just a soldier, but like one of the youngest Green Berets in our history he served in the Dominican Republic, two tours in Vietnam. He went to Desert Shield, Desert Storm when I was in kindergarten. I would describe my father as like the pointy end of the spear. Right. Um, he was uh, out front. And so I just um, I don't know I if I believe in something, I I tend to go for it with the confidence of somebody who feels like they have, you know, maybe not like the whole U.S. Army, but at least like a very effective soldier standing beside, standing behind me. And then, and my mother gave me um, the permissions that I needed to sort of challenge some of my father's more, um, you know, regressive ideas about gender or like what girls should want. And that was a big conflict in our life. Uh, my one liner about it is like, my dad believed that I could do anything, but because I'm a girl, I shouldn't have to do anything. And that kind of, <laughs> you know, benevolent sexism. Um, but yeah, I started fighting, I started fighting against like the problem. Um, as I mentioned in elementary school, the problem felt like administrators at the school. And by the time I got to middle school, um, I was fighting for choice and I was fighting for medically accurate sex education in the classroom. Um, and by the time I got to high school, I was volunteering with Planned Parenthood. But I didn't become a sex worker rights advocate until 2018 when Donald Trump signed SESTA-FOSTA into law. And I saw the immediate and devastating consequences of this federal law on my peers, who up until that point had been scheduling and screening and negotiating boundaries online uh, with clients. And so, you know, I had a background in advocacy and I had a background in being like deeply curious and, you know, because of that, relatively well informed on this issue. But it wasn't until Donald Trump signed that law um, and I saw the immediate consequences that I sort of pulled myself out of the entertainment world and then focused a lot of my energy on the advocacy world. Do you find it in an Alanis Morissette way ironic, don't you think, that in this day of, and I'm going to, put a kink shadow on it in this day of acceptance where more and more of the world is going, Oh yeah, sex is a thing. It can be pretty, pretty pleasurable. Oh, let's do a DIY show on Netflix about BDSM sex rooms. Right. Oh, why don't we uh, have shows on Showtime like sex with Sonny Megatron yet Online, because of what you talked about, it's getting like the noose is tightening. For sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, you don't you can talk to uh, queer folk, trans folk, black folk. Visibility is not liberation. And I feel very worried that we are actually on the ascent of what promises to be a potentially very violent moral panic. 
Um, you know, we have seen an increase in visibility. This is not the first time in recent history that we've seen these kind of like pockets of liberation, right? Where, you know, whole societies seem to rediscover that like people that make other people come are maybe not the problem with society. And we have a very consistent backlash to that, the demonization of LGBTQ plus folks, right? The demonization of, uh, you know, sexually promiscuous um, or like gender non-conforming uh, women or people generally. Um, actually, yeah, of course, gender non-conforming folks, but also, uh, you know, women that are cis and sleeping with men, but too many of them. Uh, we've criminalized I, I promiscuity. What you said. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, I I feel worried. We you know we lost Roe. We're seeing um, a wave of criminalization of trans folks and people seeking information about their bodies across the country. And we've built a surveillance system that I don't think the you know the average citizen really understands. So I think that we're going to see a very old pattern play out, but unfortunately with new and potentially very dangerous technology. This show started three years ago about a, how people in the kink and fetish community can gain great connections. It turned into a show about the story of the people of our community and went very much towards sex workers, not by any intention, but because I found people who were doms, people who were fetish performers that they had a very interesting story of why they are who they are. They all have the genesis that talks about what branded them to be who they are in the future. Yeah. Not one of them was it a choice. Right. In all the things you mentioned, LGBTQI plus, gender nonconforming, mm -hmm. uh, orientation or or anything like that is this a choice and so many people don't get that in right. my particular case kink was not a choice yeah and people are like what do you mean by that well i happened to watch something when i was three years old that imprinted in my mind that said you like when that is seen and this causes that yep so why do so many people, and this is the big question, if we answered it, we wouldn't have a podcast and we'd be enjoying ourselves. But why is it people are so scared of something that's not a choice? I've thought about this for a long time. And I've looked at the history of individual sex workers from history and also the way that we've chosen to, to criminalize or demonize um, or stigmatize this this very, very old thing, right, that is older than money, predates us as a species. And I really believe that whorephobia is the foundation of misogyny, that we are an existential threat to the patriarchy. And on a very literal level, you cannot have a patriarchy in a society that doesn't know or care or have a way of tracking who the dads are. And so I think controlling the bodies of women, right, and specifically sexual access to women is how women transition from people to property. And I think that it is the innate 
violence of that that has sustained this whole upside down world for the last 6,000 years. It's just amazing to me how things have progressed. And I'm going to go back to the episode of the oldest profession podcast that I listened to with Betty Page. And your podcast, so phenomenal in the research you. that you do, the stories that you tell, the way that you tell them in such a, uh, a complete but compelling way. You talked about the fact that Betty Page took pictures and people used them to sell bikinis and just paid her for the pictures. Yeah. And then you talked about how the government went after Irving Claw and his sister and how they decided that pictures were the death of everybody, that if you could see them, this would happen. And then somebody, Betty, decided, I need to just cleanse myself of all this, but could never quite cleanse herself, although she surrounded herself with evangelical types, mm -hmm. until it got to the point where she couldn't even live with herself. Yeah. Yeah. That's one story. What is a story that you have heard in recent times, because I'm sure there is one, of somebody who was put through such a ringer that it got to the point where they thought they were doing everything right, then they were told they were doing everything wrong, but they knew it was right, but they hear it's wrong, and finally said, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. Unfortunately, we absolutely lose folks to suicide um, every year. And those names are included in the International Day to End Violence Against Sex Workers, which is celebrated on December 17th of every year where we, we read the names of victims that those we've lost to violence, right? Whether we're talking about serial predators or people who are uh, killed by police officers or domestic abusers um, or people who are driven to suicide because of the weight of this stigma and the devastating impact that criminalization um, has. Uh, you know, there there have been some prominent folks. Uh, one of the executive directors of Swap USA, uh, you know, took their own life recently. But I wouldn't presume to tell their story here. I don't feel I don't feel prepared to do that. But I can say that we lose a lot of folks to suicide, and we lose a lot of folks to state violence. You know, I don't know if your listeners are familiar with the story of Yang Song, who. Uh, in um, I think it was 20, 2019 or 2020, she was a 38-year-old uh, massage worker who had immigrated um, legally uh, from China to the U.S. and started a business with her husband. Um, her, her husband got a terminal illness. The thing about being a small business owner is that she lost her husband and the business at the same time and so started working in massage parlors in Flushing, Queens, offering sexual services. Uh, we know that her massage parlor was raided and we know that she was sexually assaulted by the arresting officer because she reported that crime to both her mother and also her immigration attorney. And when she was raided several weeks later, she threw herself off of a third story 
building rather than face another arrest and potential assault. And she died from her injuries several days later. Wow. Yeah. The thing that gets to me about the people that I speak to on this podcast and the irony of the fact that the nicest people I know are dominatrixes. <laughs> We're the best. The fact that the principle of pleasure scares people while violence does not. Sometimes. Now, I'm talking about entertainment. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about the fact that you can put a picture of Yvonne Craig tied up as Batgirl on one side of the screen and then have a fetish model recreating it on the other side and the fetish model will get banned from Instagram while right. the old picture of Batman will be celebrated. Right. There's obviously somebody pulling strings, whether it's the credit card companies whether it's Congress, whether it's evangelicals, and getting back to that Betty Page thing. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yet you hear so many stories of some of these evangelicals being the biggest customers. I mean, I think it's really important to talk about what what's happening now with um, Tim Ballard, you know, the founder of Operation Underground Railroad. Uh, he was celebrated recently in the film, um, you know, Sound of Freedom. And this is what so much of the, you know, religiously motivated anti-sex, anti-trafficking world looks like. You know, it's selling um, this egregious and often, uh, you know, uh, salacious, oversimplified, unhelpful narrative and promotes violence, right? Sending SWAT teams into vulnerable communities as a viable solution to that problem, right? Mm -hmm. That we believe that we can arrest our way out of that. But Tim Ballard right now is being sued by five women that he coerced into, um, you know, sexual situations without their without their consent um, when they, you know, were were going on effectively mission trips together, right? He would sort of bully them into doing the couple's ruse and would take that uh, several steps too far. And so this is a man who has built a career fashioning himself as a hero, right? The rescuer of victims who are being held captive when it is he himself who has been victimizing vulnerable people within his own community. And I think that is, it's so important for us to see that. And it's a pattern that repeats itself over time. The first film in the United States funded by religious organizations was a biographical tale celebrating uh, the reverend story from um, who had the brothels shut down in San Francisco in 1917. They made a movie about him, hailing him as a hero, uh, a, you know, fighting against white slavers, which is what we were calling the anti-trafficking movement in the 19-teens. 
And that film, much like Sound of Freedom, was widely celebrated. It was a blockbuster hit, and it continued to perpetuate a moral panic that led to the incarceration of tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people. We're talking about some pretty heavy stuff right now. So I'm going to take a break from the heaviness and tell you a very funny story. Right. That has to do exactly with what we're talking about. Uh, my mom was very good friends with a Tony Award winning best actress who was doing a national touring company of Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. She Love was that. playing Mona. And Marvin Zindler, who was for many years a, a, a celebrity for being a newscaster for Channel 13 uh, action, uh, Eyewitness News, because it was Marvin Zindler Eyewitness News. And he was the one that was so famous for closing down the best little whorehouse in Texas. So he shows up backstage at the best little whorehouse in Texas and wants to take a picture with this Tony Award winning actress who is so very famous for her work. And my mom's friend looks at Marvin Zindler and says, you son of a bitch, you closed my house and walked away from him. Yes. I love that. That is called advocacy right there. Stop hanging out with your pugnacious prude friends. Exactly. Yeah, you do not owe social favors to people who are part of the problem. This is what that is the preface for. There are people who want to tell stories like myself and I will I will say that the gender that I was born with was male. I consider myself gender fluid because of the androgynous thinking that goes through my brain every single day. So male doesn't really capture who I am totally. Sure. But let's talk about men. What can men do better to be able to understand what sex workers have to go through? Oof. That's a big question. A very big question. I, don't... I think there's a lot of misunderstanding because I've gotten to know many people, at least in the kink community, and 99% of the the males who think they know everything will say it's all about kinky sex. And the fact sex. is, most of it isn't about sex. Yeah. It's about connection and, and the psychological benefit you can get from getting in touch with different sides of you. 100%. Yeah. With the first part of your question, when it was just like, what can men do better? the thing that immediately came into my mind was to actually prioritize shared pleasure, right? And I I don't mean um, to actually prioritize pleasure. And I, I don't mean just like what makes you come, right? But I mean embracing the connection 
that men especially, but just we as humans are so hungry for and to stop using pleasure as a status tool, that it is about connection. This is not a game that is won, right? Sex is much more like sharing a pizza than it is like playing a game of baseball. Nobody has to win or lose in that situation. And, you know, this is uh, not as straightforward as it sounds, right? We are all operating and, you know, swimming in cultural waters after a 6,000-year campaign teaching men that sex is something they take from someone who isn't allowed to say yes, right? There's a lot of real um, unprogramming and unlearning that has to happen there. And I think that it has to do with coming into your your own body and embracing your own vulnerabilities to open yourself up to a genuine connection with like another human um, as opposed to, uh, you know, an objectified uh, like object or status, status symbol. When it comes to helping men understand or empathize with the experience of sex workers specifically, I don't know that I recognize that as like one of our goals, right? I don't really need my, um, my clients or even men in the world, right, to understand my experience so much as I need them to like pay me and not arrest me, right? Like that, that mm -hmm. would be the the foundation. Um, and I, you know, it's sort of like, like therapists exist. And I don't know that we live in a society that like understands what therapists do. But we don't live in a society that criminalizes or stigmatizes therapists or takes their children away or kicks them out of their apartment or makes it impossible for them to get, you know, other jobs or progress their career. So I think before moving to uh, to deep empathy, I think we have to call off the hunt as the first step. Um, but if men are genuinely interested in sort of understanding and building empathy with sex workers then I think that they have to, the first step is recognizing um, or trying to imagine or building uh, building up a, some kind of cognitive repertoire, again, around their own vulnerability, right? Like, what would it be to move through the world that didn't recognize your rights, that couldn't hear you when you spoke, that did not recognize your right to take up space? And I think that's, you know, one of the big problems that, you know, like cis people, white people um, and men need to be sort of building those muscles. But I think that's a secondary priority to me than to like pay me and don't have me arrested or kicked off of the the platforms that I'm on. I understand. I think it's because and the reason that I brought it up was because the understanding that I have developed over these interviews from a person who was on their side in the first place. Sure. Yeah. Not somebody who'd visited a sex worker at any time. Because no to me, life is a, about a lot more than sex, which gets me to the point of take the percentage of the time you spend wanting to get pleasure and put it in terms of the entire week and how small a percentage that is. Yet, if you were to look at society, it seems like men think about that small percentage in this huge percentage of time 
while women are taking care of business and say, yes, we may think about it when we think about it, but it's not something where it feels like it's this constant tsunami yeah. coming at you. I think that that in part for for men, right, talking about like cis heterosexual men, um, sex has become a status symbol Mm -hmm. in a way that it isn't for women. Right. Men gain status with sexual conquest. Right. And women lose status having been conquested or whatever, conquered. Um, And so conquested. (laughs) Yes. uh, It's a new new term. (laughs) Um, Yeah. but I, I also want to sort of push back and say that, like, I think that women, we we are more connected to our bodies. And when you make pleasure your business, you can become sort of aware of this undercurrent that is pulsing through everything all of the time. Right. Which is, of course, a nightmare for HR departments in the corporate world. But like the <laughs> thing that we thrive on in shadow spaces. Right. Whether that shadow space is, you know, a brothel or a dungeon or a theater like there's something there that I think can be tapped into that I think women are closer to and men are are hungry for. But I think it's a mistake when we think about the, you know, campaign for sexual partners or sexual attention. I don't think it's actually about pleasure. I don't think it's about embodied pleasure. I think it's about conquest and status. And that I think explains a lot of the disconnection that you know, people report from the field, from the hookup culture. And I also think speaks to the dissatisfaction with both parties, right? Men feel lonely and women feel tragically unsatisfied. I don't remember what the latest orgasm stat is, but it's more depressing than the wage gap. I I mean, it's women are just not coming when we are sleeping with men. (laughs) Not that men tend to make it a priority. Right. Yeah. But but again, and it, yeah. And it's like, you know, and, and even when, you know, folks are, are made aware of this, the female orgasm itself becomes just another status thing. Again, it's like completely disembodied. It's not it's not connected. It's not grounded into this like deeper connection. Um, and I think that, you know, sex workers, uh, we we thrive on on giving people a taste of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm going to do a reverse story here just because I think it's, it, again, we need a little bit of a break from the heaviness. Sure. Uh, FetishCon last year, I was walking in and Jean Bardot and Christina Carter were up on stage and they had this uh, lovely plus size model tied up in a chair and they had a vibrator out and were trying to help her achieve what you were talking about Mm -hmm. and so as i'm walking and i suddenly hear gene bardot say cat suit get up here and i'm like yes (laughs) ma'am when gene bardot yells your name you you better (laughs) do something sure and i jumped up on stage and everybody's in a panic because you know you're you have to have a written waiver to get on stage and she says along with Christina Carter. I think it is your job to bring her to where she wants to be. And I went, all right. <laughs> now, what what puts this in context is that uh, 
I was in a marriage where my wife was withholding intimacy for the last 10 years of it. And I am not a sexually driven person, but they hand me this vibrator and I have a job to do. Yeah. And so the first thing I did before placing any vibrator on any clit or anything is I looked down and I went, hi, I'm John, also known as Katsu. She goes, hi, I'm Molly. I say, hi, Molly. Do you realize how beautiful you are right now? Mm. And she went, no. I said, you have all sorts of people looking at you with this beautiful look. I said, so is this where I put it? Does that make you happy? Oh, yes, very much so. I know there are a lot of people who are, are thinking vicariously of what you're going through right now. Yeah, I said, and they, they're, they're probably a little jealous, but right now this is all about you. She told me that in the entire fetish con leading up to that moment, she had not had an orgasm, but she was able to achieve an orgasm because somebody decided to connect with her. Yep. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Connect the permission to receive the validation of that of like there's so much that went right in that story. And it reminds me of something that's sort of that's come up in in my research. And this is a part of the show that I'm touring. But um, did you know that in many places and like we see this pattern across continents, you know, six, 10, 12, 20,000 years ago, if a man wanted to rule, then one of the things that he had to do was make a priestess prostitute, the embodiment of the sacred whore, come super hard. And if he <laughs> didn't do that, then not only was he not allowed to become king or whatever, but also somebody cut off his dick. <laughs> and look, I'm look, I am not suggesting ritual castration as a policy proposal. I would never you know, however, I am suggesting that it worked fine for tens of thousands of years and that we have lost something fundamental when we stopped worshiping at the feet of powerful women and relishing in their sexual and erotic pleasure and energy and the multitude of gifts that that brings into the world. And we've lost something in our campaign to repress that most sacred thing. I think that's a beautiful place to take a break because when we come back on What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want, presented by Dating Kinky, we're going to talk to Caitlin Bailey about not only this podcast that she does, but the fact that she's touring around and bringing 75 minutes of total pleasure to you on stage when we come back. Connect with the show on social media. Follow us on Twitter, because that's what we still call it, at WhatWomenWantP1. On Instagram, as long as they don't suspend us, at WhatWomenWantPodcast. On Pinkster, at WhatWomenWantPodcast. And on FetLife as WWWPodcast. And if you want to follow our host, that's easy as they are high there, Katsu, on all platforms. 
We'd love to hear from you, so be sure to reach out. Now, some more words with Catsuit's friends. Are you curious about kink but don't know where to begin? <laughs> or maybe you have a friend who, while they appreciate your interest in BDSM, they don't really understand what it's all about. You should check out Kink for the Curious. It's a fun little activity book with color pages and word finds, lots of silly puns, <laughs> uh, but lots of solid BDSM and kink information written by somebody who's been in the business for almost 30 years. Kink for the Curious, a BDSM activity book for beginners written by Princess Natasha Strange, that's me, <laughs> is available on Amazon. Go get it now. Craptaculous boundaries are not your fault. The more severe the dysfunction you experienced growing up, the more difficult boundaries are for you. David W. Earl. Or as Ms. Titania said, Nobody ever warns you that when you come from dysfunction, a healthy mind can feel unsafe. We spend our lives being controlled by others, so we learn to control others. Or we allow others to control us in exchange for love. Learn more about Take No Shit. Build better relationships through discovering, creating, and maintaining healthy boundaries in three, sometimes five, simple steps at my.curiouser.com. That life. Hi, this is Venus, and I have a special message going out to all the single ladies listening right now. What if you could have a committed, loving relationship with a partner who is monogamous to you, but who would love to see you have sexual experiences with others? Sounds too good to be true, right? Well, it's not. You really can have your cake and eat it too. You can have it all. Learn more at venusconnections.com. That's venusconnections.com. Thank you for joining us. Please show your support of the show by subscribing on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a rating and review. You can also subscribe to our video channel at youtube.com slash at What Women Want Podcast. And to financially support the show, which we greatly appreciate, please visit bit.ly slash thanks catsuit and give what you can to help catsuit travel, teach, and bring you great in-person interviews. We very much appreciate it. This is Nookie, and Dating Kinky has brought you this podcast since day one. We believe in great education for our community, and this is just one of our efforts. Please join us at Dating Kinky, built by kinksters for kinksters, poly, queer, trans folk, and anyone not quite vanilla, and it's free. And welcome back, everyone. I'm John, also known as Hi There Catsuit, joined by Caitlin Bailey, who is the founder and executive director of The Old Pros and the host of the oldest profession podcast now in season number five. That's pretty amazing considering all the research it takes you <laughs> to do each episode. Thank you so much. I, I love it. It's a, it's a labor of love. 
it's my way of making what has really genuinely been a lifelong obsession uh, public. And I'm delighted to be spreading the news. Did you study anything uh, in in school that inspired you to do this? I did, actually. Um, I was a history major at the College of Charleston, and I wrote my... Go Cougars! Yeah, that's right, on so many levels. Um, I uh, wrote my senior thesis on the economic structure of brothels between 1890 and 1920, um, so leading up to women's suffrage and also America's involvement in World War uh, World War One. So, yeah, I, I I remember when I pitched the idea, uh, my professor told me that I wouldn't find anything in the archive. Uh, and I laughed very hard and found so much in the archive and have continued to do that for the, the, the next 20 years. And all that research has come into the, making the oldest profession podcast as beautiful as it is. Has there been a story within that that has just surprised you and made you giddy? I I have to tell you that the the story of um, uh, Sylvester Stallone really really made me smile. Uh, I I love that story. I really enjoyed uh, watching the Italian Stallion, which is much more consent forward. Uh, than his his work in Rocky uh, was, especially Rocky One. Um, but I really love that he was effectively a survival sex worker, right? That sex work allowed him to hold off um, and get the terms that he wanted. That you know gave us Rocky. He avoided starvation um, with that. And I also kind of love that he was never like ashamed by it and didn't let it hold him back. That might be you know his privilege, like. You know, sexual stigma doesn't stick to men uh, in the same way that it does to women. But I I was really delighted by his performance and sort of the story of that story. Um, and it was a shock to me when I found out. That's beautiful. You also have a show which is called a 75-minute mad dash through 10,000 years of sex worker history from... <laughs> A whore's eye view. Tell me yeah. how that came about. I'm very proud of it. So my my background is actually in stand up comedy. So I spent you know almost a decade touring clubs and colleges uh, all over uh, the U S. Um, and I you know my first one woman show was about coming out to my father as a sex worker. And this is my this is my second one woman show, but it's a it's an art form I love. It's equal parts you know, history lecture, stand-up comedy, and uh, very personal and often not funny uh, personal storytelling. But yeah, I've taken my um, obsession with this thing and done a deep dive into my relationship with my father, who was a, a career soldier. And, you know, it's a, it's a mad dash through 10,000 years of history from a sex worker's perspective, specifically drawing parallels between the way that we think and talk about soldiers and the way that we think and talk about sex workers, because sex workers and soldiers have been in conversation uh, the whole time. We've gone almost an hour in the show, and that's the first time you mentioned came out as a sex worker. Yeah. I've totally interviewed you as a podcaster <laughs> and as a comedian mm -hmm. and as an advocate. These are all identities I hold. 
And it's interesting that I never put that together with you. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Yeah. And maybe it's because I am Sandra D. I don't know. <laughs> but was it a way for you to be able to get through a time in your life you needed to get through? Or was it something that you said, no, this is some, this is a part of me. What was the genesis of it? It's always been both. Um, you know, I came to sex work the first time around from a place of unquenchable curiosity, right? Mm -hmm. I felt I'd been, again, studying and reading and consuming the stories of these ancient courtesans. I'd absolutely lost faith uh, in the idea that the teachers, politicians, or grown-ups in my life were telling me the truth about sex generally or the oldest profession specifically. And so I started doing sex work um, you know, when I was when I was in high school, um, I was older than my father was when I when he joined the army, but I was not yet quite 18, I was practically 18 years old. Mm -hmm. um, but I had no urgent survival needs to meet. Right. I come from an upper middle class family. You know, my parents gave me a generous allowance. I did not have, uh, you know, vices to fund. Um, but I wanted to empirically test my deep suspicion about what I thought uh, this thing would be. And I was right, you know, I did not I did not get hurt. My horror character gave me a safe space to want um, and explore appetites that were a liability everywhere else that I went. Um, and then I came back to sex work, not out of like abject poverty or desperate need, but to fund uh, my career in the arts, right? I was pursuing stand-up comedy. Um, an actually exploitative industry. Um, and so I used sex work to help facilitate um, the desire to put most of my energy towards my craft. You know, I'm sure that I could have cobbled together a living uh, with the in the gig economy um, of New York, but I wanted the flexibility uh, that came with sex work. And it is my belief that sex work has funded more artists, students, and entrepreneurs than all of the grants uh, in human history. I would say that is probably very accurate, especially having heard stories of people said, yeah, I put myself through school by blank, blank, blank. You know, right. I totally get that. Yes. Where, as our show will air around mid-November, as we okay. tape this now, uh, where uh, can we see this mad dash through 10,000 years of history? Well, we are just putting together our end of year and 2024 touring calendar. So the best way to find out is to go to whoreseyeview.com, check out our calendar to see if we are coming to a city near you, or better yet, join the Old Pros mailing list, where in addition to getting tour dates, you will also get a roundup of sex worker rights related news. You'll hear about podcasts that are coming out. And I you know, recently wrote a piece for the Huffington Post. And so if, if something like that happens again, you'll also hear about it in our delightful newsletter, which goes out every Friday. And as my character sometimes would say, you know, I, I, I understand the old poets, but it's the old prose I don't quite understand. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. Worth it. <laughs> Caitlin, yeah. you are an absolute joy, and this has been so much fun. Anything else you'd like to share with us? 
No, I really appreciate the opportunity. I do uh, need to mention um, that Old Pros, we are a nonprofit media organization. We are fiscally sponsored. And so if you would like to support this work, you can do so with a tax-deductible donation at oldprosonline.org. And we would very much appreciate that. You can also support us by rating and reviewing the podcast wherever you listen and subscribing to our newsletter and uh, that should prepare you to tell your friends that they're wrong about sex work if you're even hanging out with those kinds of people. I will absolutely make sure that I, I give a five-star review. That's what everybody loves is the five-star review uh, and the review. Now, if I could only get people to do that for this one. <laughs> <laughs> it helps a lot. I don't ask for much. Just give me, tell me how I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be your yeah. best friend. <laughs> <laughs> Caitlin, thank you so very, very much. I look forward to revisiting with you at some point. And hopefully, I don't know why Cincinnati would be on your calendar, but hopefully you'll come to a place near me where I can see this wonderful mad dash and I'll have a towel and water at the end. Fantastic. We will absolutely keep you informed and you are enthusiastically invited to all of my shows. So much appreciation. Thank you so much. Thank you. What a wonderful visit with Caitlin Bailey. And if you really want to know some amazing history about the oldest profession, definitely subscribe to the oldest profession podcast. You'll learn a lot and you'll be entertained too. Have you missed an episode or want to catch up on our nearly 200 episodes? All our shows are available in the archives. And here's what's coming up on the next edition of What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want, presented by Dating Kinky. I finally get to talk to my friend from FetishCon. Autumn Bodell will join me, and she'll talk about her trips all across the country as a fetish model and her adventures in life. Autumn Bodell, next time on the program. New shows premiere every Tuesday on your favorite podcast platform. Subscribe to the show and never miss an episode. And as always, we invite you to join our friends over at Kinkster Merch on Etsy. They have a full line of what women and other wonderful humans want, t-shirts, mugs, and notebooks as well as hundreds of designs that you can get to help your kinky wardrobe. Check them out on Etsy at Kinkster Merch. I'm John, also known as Hi There Catsuit. I thank you for being with us on this edition of the program. I hope I've earned the privilege of your time, and I remind you to always remember consent and to love each other always. What women and other wonderful humans want connects with you. Join us on Twitter at What Women Want P1, on Instagram at What Women Want Podcast, and for our kinky friends on FetLife at WWW Podcast. This has been a presentation of Dating Kinky, built by Kinksters for Kinksters, Polly, Queer, Trans folk, and anyone not quite vanilla. And it's free. 